The war between Israel and Hamas is fast approaching the 100-day mark as Israel is scaling down its operation in Gaza. And South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide in The Hague. We will speak to the world's leading philosopher on the morality of war. This is Unholy. I'm Yannick Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. And I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. It's unholy. Two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcasts. Um, we sort of noted when it was the three-month mark, but somehow a hundred days really st- stays in the mind. And what lingers for me, particularly a conversation we had a couple of weeks back with mother of a hostage, uh, Rachel Goldberg Polin, and how she changes the sticker that she wears on her clothes uh, every day to mark the day since her son Hirsch age 23, was taken by Hamas, and he's been a hostage, obviously, ever since. She will be writing on, in three figures, 100. I mean, that is a bleak landmark uh, that is being passed. So that's at at one end, and then obviously the war itself, which started immediately um, by Hamas with that uh, attack on October the 7th. It's been, you know, 100 long and bloody days. Yes, and uh, you know what resonated uh, with me this week uh, is hearing Danielle Aloni. She's a hostage that came back. She was abducted from Niroz with her daughter, Emilia, and with her sister, Sharon, and her daughters, Emma and Yuli, and Sharon's husband and uh, brother. And she said things, you know, all of them come back with these shocking testimonies. But what she said was that she explained how when the terrorists broke into the kibbutz and took, essentially took over the kibbutz, they started burning the family home. And she turned to her five-year-old child, Amelia, and said to her, I'm sorry, but we are about to die. And then she looked at her sister and she said, you know, the children are suffocating from the fumes of the fire. Let's at least step out. The terrorists will shoot us, but at least we'll die quick. I mean, just to think of what they went through. And what these children went through. And they they weren't shot, although a lot of other families were on that day. They were abducted into Gaza and after more than 50 days released. Uh, Danielle's sister's husband is still in captivity, so is uh, his brother and her girlfriend. But I was watching that interview, Jonathan, and, and I could not think to myself, there is nothing, there is no difference between her and me. We are roughly the same age. Our daughters are the same age. And you think to yourself after a hundred days that essentially, you know, all of us, all humans surround themselves with walls of denial. It, it's healthy. It helps us function. Obviously, the one thing that we deny more than anything is our mortality. And I think that what happened to us on October 7th to all Israelis is that those walls of denial came tumbling down together with that fence that was supposed to protect us on the southern border. The fence is up now, but the walls of denial aren't. And the more time passes, the more hostages are still there, 136 hostages. Most of them are still alive. We can't begin our healing process. We are still very much living that day, even though it's almost been 100 days since. Yeah, um, that point about the mother and the daughter, my word, um, that's searing and and they they haven't stopped these testimonies in these hundred mm-hmm. days they keep coming 
uh, it was on, I think, in our conversation with Ilana Dayan, the notion that in some ways it is still October the 7th in Israel. Israelis, Israelis are going over it and over it and over it. When I was there, the pe- people were talking in terms of they, they'd been, it'd been 40 plus days since they all knew the people had survived it. They knew exactly the number of days, just like Rachel Goldberg pulling with her sticker. They knew how many days it had been since they'd slept. And I suppose with this 100, 100 day mark, there'll be a diving even deeper into it, um, ceremonially, formally, commemoratively. Yes, there are going to be uh, uh, many ceremonies. And in the meantime, I think we should also state that Israel has officially scaled down the war. Uh, That's important because there were discussions uh, with uh, the United States, uh, which backs Israel still completely, about shifting gears from this very intense stage of the war to something that will be more these kinds of targeted raids in uh, uh, Gaza, and that can last for a very long time. I think from the Israeli perspective, what is interesting was that Israelis officially learned of this from an interview given uh, by Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, to the Wall Street Journal and the IDF spokesperson, Daniel Agari, to uh, the New York Times, essentially officially telling Israelis that the military operation is being scaled down. That, by the way, did not change the reality of nine Israeli soldiers uh, dead in one uh, 24-hour period, uh, the deadliest day in Gaza for the Israeli military uh, in the past a month. One of that those uh, um, incidents were was actually an ammunition uh, accident, an explosion of ammunition. Six soldiers were uh, killed in that incident, including also an injury of uh, Idana Medi, who's a very famous singer and actor, he acts in Fauda, who was injured in that uh, incident. Another proof, if you needed, that the Israeli army really uh, everyone goes through the ranks of the Israeli military. So that is another thing that happened uh, this week. Yeah, and and the war continues, obviously, uh, in terms of what Israel is doing in Gaza and, you know, the death toll each day that's given, admittedly, from, you know, Hamas-run sources is that it's triple figures, 100, 200 dying, killed every day. It did make me wonder about this, whether the reality that you're seeing and hearing is described by what the official statements from Gallant and Hagari to the English-language-American press were. I mean, it's very interesting that these statements were made not to the Israeli public in Hebrew, but in English to the rest of the world, uh, particularly to America. I mean, it invites some uh, skepticism. I mean, partly because it's saying, look, we've moved to a different phase of the war, and yet the death toll is still heavy in numbers every day. So some people will think, well, how much of a different phase is it? And also just this idea of different messages and different messaging, as if this is something the rest of the world wants to hear, but isn't, is it fully sincere if, it, if Israeli leaders are not saying that to the Israeli public themselves? Yes, well, we should mention that, first of all, there has been a scaling down, which was pretty clear to Israelis wasn't said to them officially, and I think that's a problem when it's said officially first to the American media and then to the Israeli public. But obviously, when you have such a large scale of reservists in Gaza and you start scaling it down, then everyone returns to their lives. You understand that that is what is going on. I think they were kind of worried to say it directly to the Israeli public because then the Israeli public would say, wait a minute, you promised to eradicate Hamas. Why are you scaling down uh, uh, what is happening? This is a very 
it's a pivot and it will take time to see and to feel on, on the ground as well. You've had, as you mentioned, you've had uh, Palestinian casualties. You've had a lot of IDF casualties this week, even as the uh, military is scaling down its operations. But it definitely is and going to transform into a stage of of raids, of targeted assassinations, but not the large-scale war and intensified war that we've seen thus far. Yeah. I mean, it does make you, you know, the, one of the things that the Israeli politicians always said about the Palestinians, about Arafat, for example, don't watch what he says in English, watch what he says in Arabic. It's not as if Israel doesn't itself have two very different um, discourses, one in English for the outside world, oh, yeah. one in Hebrew among itself. Indeed, that is going to be a big part of the discussion we'll have about the proceedings that are going on in The Hague, because in a way it turns on the, where, the extent to which the conversation that happens in Israel is heard and overheard by the outside world. But um, okay, so things changing uh, on the ground in Israel. There is obviously this other front, these attacks by Houthi rebels in Yemen, aiming a rocket fire at shipping through the Red Sea. The French military now saying it's going to be escorting ships as they go through there. There's an operation led by the United States about Operation Guarding Prosperity. It is clearly a, a massively important commercial artery, and that is still in peril. And we have, you know, as we've been saying for weeks, keeping an eye on what's going on in the north Yet more action there between Israel and uh, Hezbollah. Exchanges of, uh, of fire, both sides still there. I don't know how long the lid stays on that. And whether or not, in some ways, the withdrawing of reservists that you mentioned out of Gaza goes in tandem with a deploying of forces northward that to into buttress to reinforce Israel's uh, presence and ability uh, there. Yes, I think it, it, first of all, it allows for the Israeli military to plan uh, better for any sort of option of a second front. And also, uh, with, with the United States standing so clearly behind Israel, and also being very clear on the fact that it doesn't want a second front, I think essentially, how shall I say this, giving the United States what it wanted, which is a scaling down of the intensity of the war in Gaza to allow for uh, some sort of negotiation in the North. Because obviously, if the war in Gaza uh, would stay on this high level, at some point, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, head of Hezbollah, would have to react, even if the border in the North would have been uh, quite uh, quiet. We don't know where this is heading. It, it's still the, the accurate to say that the top military brass in this country assesses that if Nasrallah wanted war with Israel, he would have opened that second front on October 8th. But these things obviously have a, a life of their own and an escalation or a miscalculation can always happen into this uh, kind of war. Israel doesn't want that to happen. But on the other hand, there are 65,000 evacuees from the northern part of Israel who are still live, not living at home because they were promised uh, a Hezbollah, that Hezbollah will somehow move away from from the border. That is yet to be resolved. And again, we are etching day, we are reaching day 100 of this war. As we speak, though, I think you'll need the dominant story, certainly outside Israel, and I think it's obviously making waves inside too, is the hearing of the International Court of Justice at The Hague, hearing a application brought by the government of South Africa seeking that the ICJ, the court, uh, brand Israel guilty of genocide in Gaza. It's in basically the most serious charge 
that can be levelled in international law. The court uh, was hearing on Thursday the case made by South Africa with the view to hearing the defence of Israel made by Israel and its lawyers on Friday. It was a, you know, for people close to Israel, it would have been a very difficult several hours to listen to. Huge uh, sort of um, attention on it. There's crowds of people outside the court in The Hague, uh, live streams that are being watched. There's photographs of people in South Africa gathering publicly to watch a TV feed of it. It's like a very big event. There's lots to say about this. Um, Just the things I would say from the start is the bar is very, very high legally. I spoke this week uh, or heard this week uh, Professor Yuval Shaney talk, who's a real expert in this field, Israeli legal scholar, speaking about this and explaining some of the kind of mechanics of this and how it works. The, the point, the key point is, it's a really high bar to clear. And the ICJ has actually, despite many cases of awful things going on in the world, has only ever once branded to be an act of genocide. And that was the Srebrenica massacre in Bosnia in the mid 90s. The bars that you have to clear are you have to show, first of all, that there is a pattern of conduct that could only be explained if there was a plan for genocide. You have to prove there was a, there is a plan, it's a deliberate attempt to destroy a, a people, that there is a pattern of conduct that could only be explained by an intent to commit genocide, and that there is intent. And what's troubling to me is that the part of the cases that South Africa presented is about the sheer scale of Israel's bombardment. They are arguing that it's not sufficiently discriminate or even indiscriminate. It's killed so many people that it's actually, you can't say it's just Hamas. It's clearly, they argue, all Palestinians because that's how many people are dying. But the, the bits of the case that are, I think, um, that require attention is first this thing about the pattern of conduct. And there, there is great attention played to Israel's act of, as Yuval Shaney puts it, hampering, limiting, or disconnecting access to humanitarian services. You remember really early on in all this conflict, you and I spoke a lot about the humanitarian aid issue. And it's it's really coming back in a major way in this case, because the argument is that it's that which takes it from being a war on Hamas to being a war on the people of Gaza. And so Shaney's words that the The issue of water, he says, is something for Israel very difficult to explain. Israel's cutting off of water access, also electricity, and then this notion of creating destructive conditions. His words, deliberate imposition of destructive conditions of life. That will be the charge from South Africa. That's one. And the other thing is, again, you and I have spoken about a lot, this business of intent. South Africa have prepared this huge sheet of quotes from Israeli public officials, celebrities, influencers, but also politicians who we often on the podcast sort of, you know, dismissed as minor fringe figures. The South African government argument is that creates an atmosphere in which, you know, that seeps through to uh, IDF on the ground. And they say it's not just fringe people. And they quote, and we talked about it at the time, Yoav Gallant, the defense minister, saying, human animals, and we're going to have a total siege. Can't call him fringe. He's the defense minister. And they talk about the prime minister, Netanyahu, talking about Amalek. That quote saying we are, you know, that these are the uh, essentially the descendants of Amalek. And of course, the Bible says that Amalek uh, is singled out for eradication. 
Apparently, Israel's defense lawyers, as you and I speak, the Israeli defense hasn't started yet, but will say that, okay, Gallant and Netanyahu said that, but it was balanced by later things they said, other things they said, in which they said, our war is only about Hamas. And when they said Amalek, and when they said human animals, they were talking about Hamas, and therefore, this is not genocidal. My only point would be, this would be much, much easier if uh, those Israeli officials did not talk this way. It's a habit of talking as if the rest of the world is not listening. And guess what? The rest of the world was listening. They've got Google Translate. You can't say this stuff and think it doesn't travel. When all those ministers were talking about erasing and flattening and burning Gaza, they have built up the case that South Africa is now bringing for a prosecution of genocide, uh, or charge of genocide, which is is great trouble, I would say, for Israel and for Jews. We might get onto that. Anyway, enough of me. So... You know, there's a, an illustration in uh, Israel's um, newspaper, Yediot Achonot, this morning. It shows the judges of the International Court of Justice sitting in front of the four young women kidnapped uh, into Gaza. As pictures were, were published this week uh, by the Daily Mail. Karina, Agam, Daniela, and Liri. And they're standing in front of them and they're saying to these girls abducted, what do you have to say to your defense? That is the illustration, the caricature that appeared in Israeli uh, newspaper by Guy Morad this morning. I think that sums up the sentiment uh, by many Israelis uh, watching these proceedings in The Hague. I think it should be said that Israelis believe that Hamas that perpetrated this massacre should be on trial for genocide. And the only reason Hamas failed in its genocidal attempts was because the Israeli army is more powerful. There has to be a difference between a terrorist organization and a country trying to prevent another massacre against its citizens. There has to be a difference between what you might say is a disproportionate response and genocidal intent. And there has to be a difference between a governing power that disregards its own people and chaos and mistakes made in humanitarian distribution. If there isn't a difference, then we're living in an upside down world. So I just needed to set that to say this is the sentiment of Israelis and I think of many other people around the world who have a conscience. Now, you mentioned a few things. And I think that we, we should pick up on the issue of what Israeli ministers have been saying. And we've talked about this on the podcast, the uh, South African representatives have been uh, quoting uh, extensively all sorts of Israeli uh, uh, politicians, of course, one of them being uh, the deputy speaker of the Knesset, which sounds like a formidable title, uh, Nisim Vaturi. He has as much connection to running this war as the captain of the rugby team of South Africa has to running this war. Again, it doesn't matter because as you say, uh, some of these people have to figure out that what they are saying translates uh, into English as well. Of course, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu yesterday said very clearly, we have no intention to conquer Gaza. We don't want to harm the Palestinian people. Fine. But a lot of the other quotes by uh, ministers are problematic. We do need in that same regard to say that none of this has been translated into genocidal intent in any way of, of the military and what it has been doing. And again, there is a large, a very big difference. I think we will hear from uh, one of the most important political philosophers in the world, the difference between what Israel is doing, maybe Israel's making mistakes, and genocide. And I think that what Israelis are feeling is just how this is a, a really a, a twisting of that term. Yeah. I mean, the professor Yuval Cheney does not want this verdict of genocide. He's, he's, you know, against it. 
He's just talking about what is going to be difficult for Israel to argue in the court. And on the humanitarian point, it's not going to wash to say mistakes were made because yeah. you had the defense minister saying we're imposing a total siege. That's not a right. mistake. The, the question is policy. what actually happened in reality. Was there a total siege? Was there actually no water, no well, medicine, that, no that, food? We had this th- argument over and over. I know. But of course, the Israeli defense on Friday by uh, uh, British lawyer Michael Shaw will, will show a lot of this. Yeah. Um, they will, I'm sure, but as we speak, they haven't yet presented their defense. We know what, you know, I'm sure it will be a good, strong, robust case. I don't know how you predict what this court will decide, but, and apparently the actual judgment on the case could take years. But what the court does have the power to do is to decide if, if not on the merits of the case, but if they think South Africa has made a plausible case, they can then issue provisional measures. And that could happen very soon in the next week or two. Provisional measures will have, could have an effect on, on how Israel conducts the war. But the thing I look at more about the whole thing, by the way, is what this does for Israel's standing. Because I get the strength of feeling that you've articulated that's in that cartoon. I get that. But for Israel to function in the world, it can't just keep thinking that the rest of the world can go hang. We don't care. They don't get, they don't get it. We get it against, you know, that sort of us against the world mentality because it has a practical bearing. If there is a finding of this kind of genocide or even just the uh, related, even allies by their own domestic law will be barred from helping Israel. I don't know the situation in the United States, but I think in Britain, if there is a, a finding like this from the International Court of Justice, to which, by the way, Israel is a signatory, there are constraints then on how countries can help a country that has this kind of mark of Cain put on it. So the stakes are so high here. Mm-hmm. And, and Israel is taking it quite seriously. I of think it's taking it very seriously. We're not arguing on that. I mean, right. Of course the stakes are so high because if... Uh, this judgment, even provisional judgments happen, they're going to absolutely constrain how Israel functions in the world. Therefore, how Israel behaved in those early stages and what its leading politicians say now really matters. And I know you can say, and I would say the same, that the deputy speaker is a nobody. And even Itamar Ben-Gvir may have the title security minister, but he's not in the war cabinet. I'm afraid that's not how it looks on the outside. Outside people think that's a pretty serious person saying something pretty genocidal. So you know what? If you don't want to get a judgment of genocide against you as a state, message to people in high positions of influence, don't talk like this. And also, I'm not I think arguing on, the hum- on that. I'm not and arguing And on the humanitarian aid point, I, you know, we had the argument, it was really important because it wasn't how the war was conducted. It was going to come back and it's come back in the most direct way. So therefore, you know, on that point, like water, electricity, it doesn't look great if you're trying to make your argument that your war is with the Palestinians, not Hamas. Just don't, just... Um, uh, but uh, I just want to add one point yeah. to what you said. First of all, I agree completely with the fact that Israelis need to mind what they're saying. I also would add to that that if Israel had clearly said what its objective is on the day after the war, it would be simpler for Israel to actually state the case clearly in front of the world. There are all kinds of reasons why this government is not doing it. Many would say that the reasons are for internal political um, issues, and that is a problem for Israel. No one is saying, I am not 
in the least bit not saying that the situation is severe. It is. I am trying to articulate the sentiment in which a whole country is still reeling from a massacre and now trying to defend itself against accusations of genocide, which, to be honest, are, you know, it's, ju it's just mind-boggling that this is the situation that we are in. In a, a, a normal situation, a government who had people making statements like this could argue to the court, we dealt with this. We prosecuted people who were saying things that were incitement of gen to genocide. And the attorney general, rather hastily in Israel, just because the you know with the ICJ hearing coming up, did issue uh, a sort of letter uh, saying, um, yes, of course, incitement to genocide is incompatible with the law and we're against it. It was a letter in reply to uh, a letter from uh, Michael Sfarad and a few other lawyers saying, you know, we seek uh, a ruling on this. A bit late in the day to do that. But the more political point is, in a normal situation, people who started talking like this could have been fired from their posts. And Netanyahu couldn't do that because of the coalition arithmetic. So he has been allowing all these people, these fringe people that we've been talking about, to sound off talking about nuking and erasing and flattening and all the other burning Gaza. In a normal situation, you would be firing people talking like this. But because of the coalition arithmetic, it's not possible to do that because he worries Netanyahu about bringing down his whole coalition. And so therefore, these people have been allowed to carry on for months and months doing this it's yet another consequence of this extraordinary government that Israel has, uh, that it has left itself so vulnerable to this. Last thing I'll say on it, of course, usually it's masses at stake for Israel. The reason why partly I'm sounding animated by this is the world of pain this will be for Jews outside Israel. If Israel is branded a genocidal state, I mean, Israel will have you know, its own media saying this is terrible. It will have the cartoons like the one you've said, telling them don't, the rest of the world is wrong. They don't understand us. To be associated in any way with a country that is officially a pariah, you know, officially a court that is respected, saying genocidal, it's, it fills me with dread, that prospect. And I, I get why it's, it's, it feels completely different inside Israel. Yeah. But the I, stakes I, are so I'm high. Just for I, I, I'm just uh, wondering. I'm not negating what you're saying. I'm just wondering. First of all, we're not there yet. And I don't think we will be there. But if we are there, then how, who are you upset at? Are you upset at the ICJ? Are you upset at Hamas? Or are you upset at Israel? When you say that situation might happen. Well, of course, you know, I'm more than upset with Hamas, who started all this and who are guilty of hideous crimes. But I would be angry, and I am angry, with Israel who has, and those Israelis who have allowed this to happen, sure, because you didn't need to talk the language of genocide. And when you talk about nuking and erasing and flattening and burning and Amalek, you're going to run this risk. So I'm angry with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. By the way, you mentioned the attorney general, and we're talking about a few unserious people in the Israeli political sphere. Gali Barav Miari, the attorney general, is actually a very serious woman. And she did already issue a few weeks ago to the uh, cabinet and the ministers, the different ministers, she issued a warning in that discussion, what you're saying is very problematic for Israel. She's already done that. I'm just going to point that in parentheses. I want to say one more thing, and that has to do with Aaron Barak. 
and choosing him, this towering figure in Israeli judiciary, to be the extra judge on the panel, Israel has that right. And I think that we should just talk about that for a moment. Former Chief Justice, also, uh, we should say, a Holocaust survivor who's rescued from the Vilna ghetto. He talked about October 7th as being, he compared it to, to the Holocaust. He's an Israeli patriot, if you agree with him or not. But he also led Israel in the trajectory of a strong and independent judiciary. Now, Netanyahu's supporters over the past year, at least, vilified him as being, uh, uh, you know, representing Israel's strong and independent judiciary. And I find it interesting, and there are many Israelis who find it very interesting that Netanyahu himself would ask Aharon Barak to sit on the panel of judges to explain exactly this, that Israel has an independent and strong judiciary. By the way, it really does. Case in point, that same independent and strong judiciary threw away the heart of Netanyahu's judicial coup only a week ago. So uh, uh, when Aharon Barak will say these things, he means them and they are true. I just think it's an irony of ironies that the man who asked him to sit on this panel is the same man who said that the uh, judiciary in this country is too strong and needs to be curtailed. I think we should mention that as well when we talk about everything else that has been going on in this uh, case in The Hague. Completely right. I agree with you wholly on that. In fact, you call it interesting and ironic. I would call it hypocrisy of the highest order from Netanyahu. The idea that the, you castigate this institution as the establishment, the elite, uh, you know, the deep state, and then when you need them, you, you, you know, you go running for help from the very judicial elite who you normally despise. Because of course you do need them, because you need those people to advocate for Israel. And it's go, it, this goes beyond just the specific example of Aharon Barak. All through this episode, I feel that's what's happened, where the, he, he has his war cabinet, he turns to Benny Gantz and Gadi Eisenkopf, the very kind of, uh, military leaders who previously he, you know, would oppose, all the people who have been running the kind a civil society volunteer effort from whether it's uh, uh, you know on the streets and helping are the very same people who are on the streets protesting against his judicial coup. He and his ilk are very good at talking and pointing the finger, but when Israel hits a crisis, it turns to the very people in Israel. I would regard them as the backbone of the country, actually, who uh, normally Netanyahu and his type like railing against. But the Barak nomination is just the most extreme example. When Netanyahu is in trouble, he turns to the very people he affects to despise. Last thing I would also just add, which I think you and I will agree on, is what undermines the case of South Africa and all those who are cheering on South Africa at the court is the speed with which they branded Israel as genocidal before Israel had done anything. Mm -hmm. There were people with placards on October the 8th denouncing Israel uh, mm -hmm. as genocidal and accusing it of genocide before it had done anything. Their minds were made up. Now, obviously, I'm annoyed that Israel has helped their case with some of these reckless statements and acts. But there are people who's, who, uh, who, who've jumped on this as an excuse to say something about Israel they'd always been wanting to say. Perhaps you and I might agree on that. I point. think we do. I think we mostly agree. We just sound like we disagree. Okay, That's uh, we want to make sure the podcast. <laughs> yep. We want to talk with someone who understands the morality of war, the philosophy behind that. I think more than the both of us, uh, and we thought he would be a perfect guest for this week. Mm -hmm. 
Professor Michael Walzer is the world's leading philosopher on the morality of war. His book, Just and Unjust Wars, published in 1977, is to this day the definitive text on that subject. He's written many books since on a wide range of topics from economic justice to Jewish political thought. I think it's 27 books and over 300 articles, and we're truly honored to speak to him on Unholy today. I'm glad to be with you. I want to begin, if I may, with the um, what is happening in The Hague, in the International Court of Justice, that is hearing from today arguments in response to South Africa's petition accusing Israel of violating the 1948 Genocide Convention. May I ask you first what you think of these hearings, what you think of that accusation? I, I actually have a re- response, um, I think, very similar to the response of the IDF. <laughs> I don't think this is a um, a reasonable uh, legal action. I'm, I'm not a lawyer, but it, it doesn't seem to me that anything that the um, Israeli army is doing in, in Gaza, whatever criticism some of us might want to make, it does not come close to genocide. It doesn't fit descriptions like carpet bombing or indiscriminate bombing. It is simply very, very far from um, anything that uh, the South African lawyers could possibly uh, allege. It's just disappointing that the the battle for world public opinion has has taken this, this form. Because world public opinion is very important in asymmetric wars, as um, as America learned in Vietnam, and and as Israel has certainly learned in all of its previous wars in Gaza and Lebanon. Your mention of asymmetric war, I know you have spoken about this war as an asymmetry trap that Israel has walked into, and I want to come back to that later. But first, I thought it would be helpful for people who, perhaps unlike me, didn't uh, study your work many, many years ago, who are new to the sort of this field of philosophy of war. Hard to do, because in a way, I'm asking you to compress a life's work into a single answer. But in the broadest terms, what makes a war just? And by that measure, does this war, that, or the prosecution of the war by Israel against Hamas, does it, in your view, meet the definition of a just war? Well, f- first of all, we need to distinguish the, conduct, the, the, the war itself, the decision to go to war, and the conduct of the war. Yus ad bellum from yus in bello. From the point of view of ad bellum, from the point of view of the war itself, this is obviously a war of self-defense after the horrifying attack of 7 October. It's very hard to imagine um, any country in the world failing to um, to launch a military response to an attack of that sort. This is classic self-defense. It is the most just of all just wars. The conduct of the war is another, is another issue, and um, I, I know that in Israel itself and around the world, there have been criticisms of some of Israel's decisions in the course of this war. 
beginning with the siege, which I have criticized in um, in different places. I think it is a, it was a, both a moral and a political mistake to to announce a, a complete siege of the Gaza Strip. A, a political mistake because it soon became apparent that Hamas had ample resources so that the uh, siege was could only uh, hurt the civilian population. It could not hurt uh, Hamas. And it is, it is a peculiar argument. The moral argument is peculiar in the sense that Hamas is not only an insurgent or terrorist organization, it is a government. And this is a government that is refusing to provide the basic services for its own people. And so Israel is obliged to step in. It is peculiar to ask um, a besieging country to provide resources for the country it's besieging. But that is, um, that is part of the asymmetry trap. Since Hamas refuses to provide fuel, electricity, uh, Israel has to, has to step in. And I think even now, the scope of humanitarian aid and of resources generally has not been adequate to the requirements of, um, of the war. So, um, that is the, the beginning of a critique. As for the policy of the bombing policy, that here I refer to the asymmetry trap. Hamas has designed a war, literally designed a war that Israel can only fight by killing civilians. And Hamas has to be held responsible for that design. And that is exactly what most of the journalists reporting on the war, at least on American television, are failing to do. How can Israel win this war? As you say, Hamas has deliberately laid this trap in front of Israel, massacring Israeli civilians deliberately, and then disregarding Palestinian civilians and what happens to them. And actually, the more, it's sad to say, it's a tragedy, but the more Palestinians die, this is actually a win for Hamas yes. in many ways. And you have talked for many years about that, of, of the asymmetrical war of a high-tech army not can't manage to win a war against this kind of organization. What do we do? How do we get unstuck? There's a long history of high-tech armies not, not winning, um, which is why it, it, it now looks in retrospect that Israel was so wrong to rely on high-tech along the border with Gaza and not to reflect on the lessons of all the asymmetric wars that the high-tech armies have, have failed to win. I think the winning has to be defined, and it, it can't be defined as the, the total elimination of Hamas. It should be defined as winning would mean making it impossible for Hamas to govern Gaza, or putting it the other way, making it possible to create some kind of government in Gaza that does not include Hamas. That would be my sense of what it would mean to win. 
And in order to do that, I think, first of all, you have to lift the siege and make sure that the, 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 the suffering of the Gazan people, which its government ignores or facilitates, um, has to be ameliorated. I think it does make sense um, to take up what I what I believe have been the the suggestions of American um, officers consulting with Israel, the suggestion of limiting the bombing, focusing on intelligence and and precision, and using special forces. I'm a little skeptical about American advice here because the United States has never fought a war against an enemy who has created an underground city. This is something quite new. And I'm, I'm, I, I hope that the American advice is good advice, and I think it would be worth trying because I think that is a, a way to begin to turn the um, the war for public opinion back in Israel's favor. When the kind of criticisms you have made, but you hear them made often about Israel's conduct of the war, when those arguments are made, often the response from spokespeople for Israel is to return to the horrors of October the 7th, to offer more detail, to explain about the sadism, the cruelty, the sexual violence, and so on. Philosophically, does the justness of a war and the justness of the original cause, as it were, affect the rules, moral rules, on how you conduct that war? In other words, I mean, putting this very crudely, is Israel in some ways, in your mind, philosophically, allowed to do more because of the scale of the horror that it suffered on October the 7th? Or do we need to put that out of one's mind and say, the rules are rules when it comes to how you conduct war? Yes, uh, this is the central philosophical debate among just war theorists right now. And my critics have made exactly the argument that you just uh, suggested, that um, there is a, a link between ad bellum and in bello, and that a just war, fighting a just war, means that you can, to some degree, relax the principles of um, the rules of engagement. And I have always argued uh, against that view. And I do think that the um, that Israeli response is not the best response. Um, in fact, I've had conversations with some of the the philosophers who wrote the um, rules of engagement for the IDF. And, and w one of them said to me, taking people to the Gaza border and showing them what happened on October 7th is, is not the right way to deal with the criticisms. You should take people to see, to meet with the, the selection committee that is choosing targets to show them the kind of care that the IDF, in, in principle at least, exercises in the selection of targets and how hard they work to make sure that they are not bombing indiscriminately, that they are actually aiming at military targets, even if you don't see that 
on television because what you see is the, the rubble and not what's underneath the rubble. And I, I, it is my view that the rules of engagement should not be relaxed. You should do the best you can in the circumstances of, um, given the asymmetry trap, you should do the best you can in collecting uh, information. And, and that's one of the crucial things in this kind of a war. I, I had the sense that the very beginning of the war, right after October 7th, some of Israel's bombing was based on, it was precise in the sense that they were aiming at targets that they thought were military targets. But I think in those first days, they were using out-of-date intelligence. And since then, they have had, they've had to do a lot of work in gathering intelligence. And that is crucial work in a war of this, uh, of, of this kind. It can't be done only from the air. It has to be done to some extent on, on the ground. And, um, that means accepting risks, um, in order to, uh, aim more, uh, more precisely. But you have touched on the big debate, the, the so-called revisionists. I, I am, I am now called the orthodox just war <laughs> theorist. And the revisionists are making exactly the argument that some of the spokespeople for the IDF are making. You know, I'm curious because we now have the advantage of hindsight. We know what Hamas was planning. We know how October 7th turned out. You're, you're saying Israel shouldn't have relied so much on its technology. That's 100% accurate. But now knowing what we know about what Hamas planned, about how much weaponry was amassed, about the city, the underground city of tunnels, it's pretty clear that what Israel should have done, and some in the defense echelon here in this country have been saying it for years, was a preemptive strike on Hamas, trying to prevent the massacre that we saw on October 7th. Would that have been justified? Would the world have viewed that in any way as a legitimate action, given what we're seeing now? Yes. Well, the, uh, the history of just and unjust wars of my book um, is partly an answer to that question. I was, in 1967, I was running around the country, this country, um, arguing against the Vietnam War, and suddenly I found myself justifying Israel's preemptive attack on Egypt. And there were a lot of people in the generally lefty audiences that I would get who didn't see the point of of making the distinction that I was making. But that is the origin of just and unjust. The original unjust war was Vietnam, and the original just war for my book was um, Israel's attack on Egypt. So I, I think you can make a case for a preemptive attack. <laughs> I, I, I'm afraid a preemptive attack would have gotten you into the same asymmetry trap um, because uh, Hamas was already very far along in its embeddedness in the civilian population. There's a lot to be said about the role of journalists in this kind of a, of a war. And the journalists in Gaza, the ones at least who talk to Americans on our television news, are doing um, 
a terrible job, or perhaps they were doing Hamas's work, and many of them are, in fact, um, probably uh, friendly to Hamas. They are uh, Palestinians living in Gaza, and the American t TV simply repeats their their reports, and they don't tell us what is under the rubble, and that's the crucial thing that Americans have to be told. Um, this was a launch site. This was a storage site. Can I can I pick up your point about the asymmetry trap? Because w once you use a word like trap, the thing to do about traps is to not walk into them. <laughs> that's that's the su suggestion there, and there were those. And I'm thinking here, for example, of the New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman, who wrote early on after October the seventh. This is often a trap, and if Israel walks into it, it can only end badly because you're fighting an enemy, as you've been saying, who actually actively wants to kill your civilians, but also to see its own civilians killed. Therefore, don't go into the trap. And he mentioned, as an example, India's reaction after the Mumbai killings in 2008, where everyone expected it to use force, and it didn't. It didn't do anything. And he, you know, a bit of a lone voice in this, he said, do nothing. That's the best reaction. And then do other things at a lower level and so on. Given that you said it's a trap, asymmetrical warfare, are you in effect saying there was there were no good options for Israel involving force? None. It was ever, only going to end badly. And therefore, what? what if, if that is the case, that this was a trap and it should be best avoided, what else or what should Israel have done? The India example isn't really relevant since that was, would have been a conventional war. And there were, in fact, diplomatic, there often are diplomatic alternatives to a conventional war. I don't know what the, what Friedman thought the actual, once you decide not to respond, what do you do after that? I, I would have found it morally very difficult to open negotiations with Hamas after October 7th. Um, and I don't see any way of, of of um any way short of a full military response. I don't see anything short of that. So yes, there were no good options. You entered this this critically important war with the worst government in Israel's history. Um and with all kinds of um of bluster about the kind of war you were going to, Israel was going to fight and the kind of uh, victory you, uh, Israel aspired to. And all that was wrong. And now there are people talking about settling, restoring Jewish settlements in Gaza and expelling the, or transferring the population. Israel is simply providing, uh, ammunition for its worst enemies. Yes, and, and we see that being used against Israel in uh, the International Court of Justice. Those statements by ministers that aren't connected to conducting the war, but it doesn't matter. It sounds terrible when they say it. Right, and the prime minister has not been all that good either. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but still, I don't think there was a choice. So you had you had bad choices. And um, the best of the bad choices was to fight the war, the war that Israel is fighting, 
in the best possible way with with a lot of attention to the way it was going to look um and that that's something that generals don't don't like to think about um they want the pr people to operate independently of what they are doing because what they are doing they think is what's necessary but there were a lot of things that israel could have done especially with regard to the siege um that would have made the war easier to defend but i don't see an alternative to fighting it i i, I wish uh and and just in fairness to thomas freeman he wasn't saying literally do nothing he was saying that you know you do it at a much lower level special forces and so on just just to, so that people don't think i'm distorting his position but i think your has a question I, I was wondering you touched upon this when you talked about the journalists in gaza and of course the the belief in israel and other places are that no one holding that position is detached from hamas and moreover when israelis were abducted on october 7th we saw crowds of people in gaza uh, happy and thrilled to see Israeli hostages being abducted. How do you make that distinction that Israel is saying it is trying to make between civilians and Hamas, when clearly Hamas has a lot of public, it's tragic to say that as an Israeli, but it has a lot of public support in Gaza and in the West Bank. Right. Um, we don't know how much public support. Um, Gaza has not been a liberal democracy. There's been a lot of repression of, um, so th there may well be, um, opposing voices that have been silenced, but certainly the, um, the celebrations and, and not only in Gaza, the celebrations in New York have been appalling. But I think you have to, you have to maintain the distinction between people actually engaged in warfare and people sympathetic uh, to the side you are fighting against political sympathy does not make does not translate into combatant status any more than um, Israeli shouting for revenge makes them guilty of uh, the suffering of Gazans um, so uh, yes, that's, I uh, I have struggled over the years to 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 make that distinction as clearly as I as I can. Now, if you're fighting a, a war for hearts and minds locally, local hearts and minds, as we were in in Vietnam, then when if if you lose the battle, if if the civilian population turns radically against you and supports the Viet Cong, then you've lost the war. But you are not fighting for hearts and minds in Gaza. You are fighting for hearts and minds around the around the world, and most importantly, maybe in the US and, and Western Europe. I, I've been doing quite a lot of interviews, and I have to say, I, some of the friendliest interviewers have been from West European countries, where I could hardly um, outdo them in expressing support for the justice of Israel's wars. Um, in Germany and the Netherlands, I found remarkably sympathetic uh, interviewers. Now, maybe that's a selection. They, they come to me because they, 
they want me to say what they know that I will say. But um, I found a lot of comfort in um, in these interviews in, uh, with European countries. You've taught us in this conversation and throughout your very distinguished career to make distinctions. And the distinction you began with right at the start of this conversation was between the cause for the war and the conduct of the war. Yes. And you've made a very clear case for the justice of the cause of the war. And but I, you have talked here and in other places about the aspects of the conduct that have worried you. You've talked about what you call the siege. I've I've also seen you in other places talking about the the notion of the the degree of force. You know, two thousand pound bombs dropped sometimes to it seems pursue three or four handful of individuals and so on. And also this point about the conditions of the the habitability of those areas into which civilians have been evacuated. Would it be fair to characterize your position as saying that of the Israel-Hamas war currently being fought, the cause is just, but you worry that the conduct is unjust? No, I wouldn't say that the conduct is unjust. Uh, uh, Given the asymmetry trap, I think, except for the siege, I think you have done... Probably about as uh, you, I'm, I mean, Israel has done probably. I mean me, not him. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you have done about as as good as you can do in these uh, in these circumstances. I, I'm not close enough to the actual decisions about um, targeting, but I am. I am told by people who know. I think who know. That you are, that Israel is still working with um, a committee that selects targets and that that debates targets in a serious way, morally and legally serious way, and says no sometimes and yes sometimes, and I think that is probably the best you can do. Um, and it depends a lot on intelligence, and sometimes the intelligence will be will be wrong. And, and sometimes maybe Israel has chosen military targets that it would be not more just, but just smarter to, to ignore. Um, one example is the, the, um, the UN has created this tent city along the border, uh, with Egypt. It's a massive sea of white, of white tents. And, um, naturally Hamas has come. And has actually fired rockets from the tent city. And Israel responded at least once. And I would have thought better not to respond in a case like, like that. Just smarter not to respond. You have declared this a safe area. Try to keep it safe. Um, there are plenty of other targets. Um, and maybe more important targets than the, the uh, launching site in the middle of the tent city. But look, I, I am sitting in, in New York and I don't believe in wagging my finger at the naughty Israelis. I don't do that. I'm not close enough to these very, very difficult decisions. What I do believe is that there are serious people making the decisions and that's, that's critically important. 
Professor Michael Walzer, we learned a lot. We really thank you for talking to us today, and we really hope to talk to you in better days. I hope there are better days. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks for so much, Professor. That's a real uh, gift to us, so we're really grateful. You know, not the main thing at all, but Michael Walzer is nearly 89 years old. I mean, first of all, just his command still of this subject in which he is a giant, the leading figure in the field, but just the richness of his experience that he's talking about ideas that he was advancing in response to the Vietnam War, then 1967. This is someone with, you know, more than half a century of grappling with and thinking about these issues. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things that he said that were interesting to me. I mean, one of the things he said towards the end of our conversation, right, I'm, I'm sitting in New York, I'm gonna not going to wag my finger at Israelis and what they're doing. And the fact that he said, you know, I'm skeptical of American advice, because Americans don't know how to deal with this city that has been built underground, you know, all those kinds of interesting, the way he calls himself, he's the one who came up with it, that coinage, right, of just and unjust wars. And now he calls himself, he says, I've been called the Orthodox. And there are already the revisionists who are arguing with me. That's so Jewish, isn't it? I mean, there's so many things that in, in, in that conversation. And you know, the tragic part of it is he's saying basically none of the options in front of Israel were good. All of these options were bad, but Israel has to fight this war. It's just, a, it is a tragic place that we are in. That, that you yeah. know, that's, um, we have to say that. There was one little moment where I thought he maybe had been eavesdropping on our earlier conversation because he did say, much as he thinks the war itself is just, and he does, that the what he called the siege, uh, the humanitarian, withholding of humanitarian aid, he did think, or, or the you know, slowness in doing it and so on, that that was a problem for Israel. Yes, although when you did ask him, is it right to say that it is a just war fought in an unjust way, he said, no, it's not. Uh, And I think that should be uh, pointed out. And also, one more thing on humanitarian aid. Something tells me that we will both be 80 years old, still arguing about humanitarian uh, (laughs) aid. But just one more point. There is a chaos of war. There is Hamas completely disregarding its population and not giving the supplies that it has. And it is international organizations completely inept in distributing this humanitarian aid. We all need to put also that in some sort of context when you talk about what is going on in Gaza. Now, last week uh, in our first podcast of 2024, we were saying that very gingerly we were reintroducing our uh, weekly awards, Mensch and Chutzpah. And uh, there is a rather strong candidate, at least in the mensch category. I think gingerly is is a good word to describe how we're <laughs> easing our way back into this these categories. Yeah, I think there could only be one uh, mensch this week, uh, if I may. It's Sarah Seidner, who's an anchor and a correspondent on CNN, who this week shared with the viewers that she uh, has stage three uh, breast cancer. She said and she urged women to get mammograms, to get the, to examine themselves, to just get tested. She said something which which was shocking to me. She, she, and I assume to many others, she said that if you are a black woman, that your statistically um, higher risk is to die of breast cancer when you compare it to uh, white women in the United States. That's a shocking statistic. Um, all of this, of course, brings to the foreground this discussion. It's incredible 
incredibly important. It was very clear and visible that she was very emotional. It's a very difficult thing to talk about your personal life on air, uh, but she did it heroically. And I think that, um, I mean, she deserves every uh, round of applause for that and also uh, admiration and our mentor award, if we can you know, give it to her this week, I think. Yes, absolutely. Um, good, good choice. For Chutzpah, um, somebody who has been a multiple award winner in this category, serial award winner, uh, not for the first time. We should name time. it after him. Let's just change We, we might as well. Word. We might as well just, he's got a permanent lock on it, namely Donald J. Trump. Uh, initially, you might have thought, oh, why is he not getting the Mensch Award? Because Donald Trump this week did speak of the plight of the hostages. He said they ought to be released quote, they've suffered enough, unquote. He was not talking about the Israeli hostages held by Hamas. Instead, he re referred to what he called the J6 hostages. J6 meaning January the 6th, hostages referring to those people convicted in American courts of law and in jail for their part in the uh, attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election and the storming of Capitol Hill, uh, the riot, the insurrection of January the 6th, 2021. Those people in jail, convicts, felons, he calls hostages. He now calls them the J6 hostages. Uh, it's a chutzpah for him to call them that anyway, but particularly when we all have in our minds people who are actually our hostages and are held in Gaza, who obviously, unlike the January the 6th felons, didn't do anything. Um, so a chutzpah award yet again to uh, Donald J. Trump. As we said, you've got a permanent lock on that award. Uh, it's a battle for anyone to wrest it uh, from you, Mr. Trump. Meanwhile, one last thing, and I really genuinely do not know what category this possibly could belong in, because it's just such a bizarre story, but it has gone completely viral on multiple social media platforms and not always in a good way, which is the discovery of tunnels excavated under the building known only as 770, that is 770 Eastern Parkway, world headquarters of the Chabad Lubavitch movement. I have reported from there myself many times. Uh, it was the home of the late Rebbe, Menachem Mendel Schneerson. Uh, but discovered underneath was an effort by followers of the late Rebbe and uh, Chabad devotees who had been digging and digging and creating what looked a lot like a network of tunnels underground. This is in violation of sort of all kinds of city laws and zoning laws, etc., which New Yorkers get very agitated about. It prompted a whole lot of memes drawing the obvious parallel between the other engineers and creators of tunnels, namely those in Gaza, uh, suggesting there was some kind of parallel. Uh, there but isn't. Also, <laughs> there isn't. Uh, but also, of course, um, the anti-Semites went into a frenzy, imagining all kinds of nefarious things that the that they, in their fevered imagination, suspected Jews were doing underground. It is one of those stories. I, I, people have not yet got to, as it were, the bottom of this. Uh, despite they were the trying excavation. to circumvent COVID rules, I think, to have a way to. <laughs> no, wasn't that the story to get to synagogue without? 
Okay, that's what I, I read. Know, but that, maybe that's I fine. I mean, that is <laughs> that is as good an explanation as any you're going to get. There's all kinds of theories. One is okay. that, one is that it was that they were trying to get around planning law and basically expand Chabad headquarters underground. I don't know. The another one was that somehow they thought that the place where the Rebbe lived, Menachem uh, Mendel Schneerson, was somehow out of reach, and they needed to dig and tunnel to get closer. Remember, he in his lifetime. Uh, he was regarded by many as the Messiah, or at least this generation's candidate to be the Messiah. And many of people, many people, when he died in 1994, were not really ready to let go, and you know, camped out by his graveside, believing he would be resurrected, lead uh, them into the new messianic age. You know, I wrote a piece about it 30 years ago when it was when he was still alive. And I don't make many predictions as a journalist, but one I made that I'm very proud of is I wrote in the in the piece I wrote on it, when he dies, they'll never replace him, I said, because they just don't need to, because there's all this stuff and pictures and video and everything. And sure enough, they have never replaced him. There's no Rebbe for the uh, Chabad sect. Anyway, it is a baffling story on so many levels. Um, we'll, you know, if, if, if our... Listeners have better uh, clues or theories as to what happened. Do let us know via all the usual channels. We're at Unholy Podcast on Instagram and on Facebook. If you've got better theories than the ones marshaled by me and your neat, send them along. We're waiting to hear them. We are waiting to hear. By the way, another prediction that Jonathan made as a journalist was that this podcast would last two months. Look at us three years later. I just (laughs) wanted to throw that in before we uh, say our goodbyes. And we'll say our thank yous to Gaia Glazer, Omer Plumat, and Omri Barak. And we shall meet next week, Jonathan. See you then.